gospel. Do please turn your Bible to Mark chapter 10 again. We're going to be considering that passage that I just read together in the rest of our time together. We've been going through Mark's gospel now. You might not remember, it was back on the 4th of December that Joseph last preached on Mark's gospel. But we're diving back into our series this morning and we're picking up in Mark chapter 10. And if you don't remember much from before Christmas about Mark's gospel, let me give you a very quick recap. The Gospel of Mark is largely divided into two sections. Chapters 1 to 8, you have Jesus really verifying his identity as God's Son. If you're at YPF, I hope this is familiar to you because we're doing this at the moment on Friday evenings. You remember how you've seen Jesus healing the sick, making the lame walk. He's calmed the storm in the Sea of Galilee. He's fed 4,000 people from a simple lunch. And the first eight chapters of Mark's Gospel are really designed to confirm that this man, Jesus, is no ordinary man. This man, Jesus, is the Son of God. And the great statement of Mark chapter 1, verse 11, where God opens the heavens and says, This is my Son, in him I am well pleased. That's really the first eight chapters of of Mark's Gospel. And then we get into the second half of Mark's Gospel, and there's a tone shift. Mark chapter 8, verse 29 the disciple Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's Peter's great declaration of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that point onwards, the tone shifts because now we're on the road to the cross. Mark's gospel now has a one-way track towards Jesus' death on the cross at Calvary. And that's where we are this morning. Within the second half of Mark's gospel, we're kind of almost in a little mini section of its own. For we have this cycle, if you remember, Joseph had a nice PowerPoint slide. I haven't got the nice PowerPoint slide. But if you were here before Christmas, you might remember, you have this cycle where Jesus predicts his death, the disciples don't quite get it, and then there's some teaching about what it means to follow Jesus. And we're in the third of those repeated teachings this morning. We're in a cycle where Jesus foretells his death for the third time. The disciples don't get it at all. And then Jesus gives them some teaching on what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And this morning I hope that we're going to see that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. That's going to be the key to the first half of the sermon. And secondly then we're going to see what true service is in the kingdom of God. So two things very simply this morning. We're going to see Jesus giving his life as a ransom. And secondly, we're going to see that there is true service to be had in the kingdom of God. Let's look at Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 34, first of all. And let's see Jesus predicting his death for the third time. Mark 10, 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Here's the key. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is the third time that Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die. And imagine that your closest friend who you're following around earth comes to you and tells you these awful things are going to happen to them and they're going to be put to death. 
Mark 8 verse 31 is the first time that Jesus predicts his death to his disciples. And there he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days he will rise again. Then the second time is Mark 9 verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. And then we've just read Mark chapter 10, the third time Jesus tells them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be leaving you behind and I will no longer be with you. And each time that Jesus predicts his death, he adds a little bit more in for the disciples to see. If you noticed, if you were listening carefully, you might have noticed that what we have here in Mark 10 is a little bit different from Mark 8 and Mark 9. For in Mark chapter 10 we have this, that Jesus is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. This must have been shocking for these Jewish followers of Jesus. The Gentiles were their enemies. The Gentiles were those who they couldn't even walk past in the street without feeling a certain sense of disgust. And Jesus says, I, your leader, the man who you've seen as the Son of God, I'm going to be handed over to these Gentiles and they're going to put me to death. And I've started with this this morning because I don't want us to miss Jesus' ultimate purpose in coming to earth. See, Mark chapter 10, verse 32 is the beginning of this section. The end of this section is Mark 10, 45, where I ended our reading. If you look down at Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How many of us parents would ever say that our children were born to die? What a horrible thing to think of for your child. And yet, Jesus' ultimate purpose in life was to die. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we're delighted to see you here, but don't miss this this morning. Jesus was not just a good moral teacher. He wasn't another Gandhi or Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King who came to show us a nice way to live life. Jesus came to die. That was his ultimate purpose in coming to earth, was to die, to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we don't think very much nowadays of ransom payments, do we? Other than whenever you hear about Somali pirates or Iranian government regimes capturing British citizens and demanding a ransom, that's the only time really that we think of a ransom payment. But one preacher's described a ransom payment as a decisive and costly intervention. See, in the Old Testament, a ransom payment was required to redeem something or someone that was under judgment. Think back to Exodus, and it's closely linked with that idea of redemption and how God redeemed his people out of Egypt, but there had to be a ransom payment. The ransom was the lamb, and the blood of the lamb was sprinkled over the doors of the Israelites, and God redeemed his people. There had to be a payment for the people to be redeemed from judgment. And we too are all under judgment. This is the message of the gospel, that we are all under judgment. Isaiah 53, perhaps one of the most famous passages in scripture, tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. All of us have turned our backs on the God who created us and created this world. All of us have rebelled against him Willingly, unwillingly, we have all rebelled. And we've just sung it with the children, haven't we? All have sinned and fall short of the glory 
of God. And so we are all rightfully under God's judgment. Every single human who is ever born is under God's judgment. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of Isaiah 53 that goes on is that Isaiah 53 verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. And that was written 800 odd years before Mark's gospel. And you see it fulfilled here in Mark's gospel, don't you? That one who has prophesied in Isaiah 53, that one who we're told will bear the sin of many. And then in Mark 10:45, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the good news of the gospel, that a ransom payment has been made to a holy God. That Christ has paid the debt for his people's sins. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Can I invite you to think about that for a moment this morning? That Jesus Christ was born to die. That he was born to come to earth and to give his life on the cross as a ransom payment for sin for many. The life of one man, the Son of God, given for the many so that they might go free from the judgment that they rightfully deserved. We're going to sing about it in a moment. Whenever we come to the Lord's table, we're going to sing, He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Jesus Christ bore the ransom for the sins of many in his own body on the cross. And if you're here this morning, you're interested in Christianity, don't miss this central fact this morning. If you switch off from now on, and if you forget everything else that I say, do not miss this central fact that your central need this morning is not a good moral teacher. Your biggest need is not health. Your biggest need is not wealth. It's not political security in this country. Your biggest need is a saviour for your sin. Your biggest need is this man, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for the many. Don't miss that this morning. Jesus Christ is your biggest need as the ransom payment for sin. And if you're a Christian here this morning and that truth's familiar to you, don't let it just wash over you. Don't let that truth that Jesus Christ gave himself for your sin just flitter on by this morning. Take that truth and let it refresh you. Let the love of God this morning refresh you and take on the chorus from the hymn that I just quoted and sing, How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. It's personal this morning. Be refreshed by the love of God if you're one of his children this morning. We see that Jesus again predicts his death at the beginning of this section. For the third time, he tells his disciples, I am going to give my life and I'm going to die. But then in uh, verses 35 to 41, we see secondly that James and John just don't get it. (laughs) James and John's request. I wonder if you noticed it whenever I was reading the passage. But their request is just so far beyond ridiculous almost that it's hard to believe that they ask it. Jesus tells his closest friends and disciples he's going to die. And James and John are like the little child who comes to you and says, Daddy, Daddy. Before I tell you what I want, will you give me what I want? Fortunately, I haven't got to that stage yet with my little one-year-old. But I promise you that day will be coming. I'm sure many of you parents can testify to that. 
When a child comes to you and they want you to agree to something before they've even told you what it is that they want. And James and John come to Jesus in verse 35 and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to give us whatever it is that we want. And look at their request then. They completely ignore what Jesus has said about his death. And they say in verse 37, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. What a way to behave, eh? Jesus has just told them he's going to die and they're immediately thinking of themselves and what they're going to get out of his death. It's like that family member who, as soon as somebody dies in the family, they're wondering, what am I going to be getting out of that inheritance? What am I going to be receiving after this person has died? It's almost as if they're not even concerned about the death itself. They want to know what they're getting. And James and John are no different here. They want to know what it is that they're going to get out of Jesus' death. They want an exalted position in Jesus' kingdom. They want to be right beside him in the positions of authority whenever he rises from the dead. Their idea of service, of following Jesus, is self-serving. Their idea of what it is to follow Jesus is that they're going to get something out of it at the end of the day. But this fits perfectly with what we've already seen in Mark's gospel. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there have been those following him, and the disciples particularly, haven't understood the ethic of the kingdom of God. We've seen already that Jesus has told them, anyone who will follow me must take up their cross and follow me. Whoever will be first in my kingdom must be last of all. He must become a servant of all. And here we see these two men who have heard all of this teaching and they still haven't got it. They still haven't got what it is to be part of the kingdom of God. Their focus is solely on what they can get out of Jesus and out of his death. And they say to Jesus, rather glibly in many ways, we can follow you, we can drink the cup that you're going to drink. We can be baptized with the baptism you're going to be baptized with. I don't know whether they truly knew what they were saying when they said we can, or whether it was something that they just thought, well, I'll be able to do that, I can do anything. But it seems rather glib whenever we see what this cup and what this baptism are. Because the cup that Jesus was going to drink was the wrath of God for sin. The baptism he was going to be baptized with was the baptism of God's penalty for sin on the cross. And James and John did ultimately follow Jesus in the path of suffering. But thank God for their sake, they never had to endure the wrath of God for their sin. They did follow him in suffering. They both were, uh, well, James was martyred for his faith. We read of that in Acts chapter 12. John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos later on in his life, and he was sent out from his people. So they did both suffer for the sake of Jesus. But neither James nor John ever had to follow Jesus truly in his death because the penalty was paid in full by Jesus Christ. But let us not be like James and John. Let us not be people who, having experienced the forgiveness for our sin through Jesus Christ, let us not be those then who serve with a view to getting from Jesus. Let us not be those who are thinking, well, if I serve in this particular way in the church, what am I going to get from Jesus at the end of life? What status will I have in the kingdom through my service here in the church? Let us not be like those who jump immediately and think, what can we get out of Jesus? 
Rather, let us follow, thirdly, true service displayed by Jesus himself. In verses 42 to 45, we see this. We see Jesus who gives them an object lesson in what it is to truly serve. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. See, Jesus has an earthly object lesson ready-made in how not to lead people, how not to serve. Jesus has these Roman authorities, the Gentile rulers that he's about to be handed over to, and Jesus says leadership is not about what they do, because they thought that leadership was all about grasping power for themselves, demonstrating their status, printing on coins that they were gods, demanding that people bow to statues of them, all for their own egos, and that was their idea of service. That was their idea of what to do with your status. And we don't have to look very far, do we, to see that Lord Acton's phrase that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely rings very true, doesn't it? We don't have to look very far back in the history of our country or any other country around the world and see that when people have power, it tends to corrupt them. It's not always true, but nine times out of ten, I think it's a fairly good assessment to make. And power can be such a dangerous thing when wielded wrongly. We've seen many church scandals, haven't we, that are made so much more public today by social media. But we've seen many men who we've thought of as having a great reputation and they've fallen because of their sin and because of the way they have led in their organizations or in their churches. We've seen politicians, of course, and we've had three prime ministers in the last year because of corruption and because of greed And these things corrupt. Whenever people have power, they tend to turn from service and turn to, what can I get out of this? What can I get out of my position? But let's be careful this morning as a church here, I'm speaking to us as a church at Hollywell, not to make this too much about out there. Let's not look at our prime ministers or at our government or at big business and think, well, everything's okay in here. It's out there that everything's really bad. Everything's terrible out there, and we're probably okay in here. No, this tendency to have a wrong use of service, we're just as susceptible to it as any one of our politicians. And let's be careful to do a spiritual health check on ourselves this morning as we come to see Jesus' words of how we should serve as part of the kingdom of God. Look at Mark 10, verse 43 with me. He gives them this object lesson how not to serve. And then he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Those are challenging words, aren't they? Because none of us like to be treated as a servant or as a slave. And it's not very nice to be treated that way, is it? And I'm not recommending, by the way, you go around treating people in that way. But we as Christians, those who have been ransomed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to demonstrate this in how we interact in this church with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to become those who are servants. We must become slaves of all if we want to be great in the kingdom of God. 
Now, if you're thinking this morning, well, how does that apply to me? Well, I think that it applies to all of us, regardless of our position. First of all, there's an implicit assumption here that if you are a Christian, you are a servant. And if you are a servant, you're serving. So let me ask you this morning, are you serving? Are you serving here in the church? And don't think too narrowly about that. Don't think, well, I'm not on a rota, so am I really serving? No, don't think too narrowly. Think about the ways that you can serve which are unseen. Think about the ways that you serve which may well be seen. Think about the ways you serve so that others can serve. great example of this is if you're a mother and you're allowing your husband to go out and serve in the church and you can think who I'm speaking to at the moment. I'm speaking to my own wife. That doesn't mean that you're not serving in the church. That simply means that you're serving by enabling others to serve in a more public way. But are you serving? Can you point to a way in your Christian life that you are serving the church and serving your brothers and sisters around you? If you're not, could I challenge you this week to think of a way that you could serve those around you? To think of a way that you could then go and help out in the church and serve and get involved? If you're a leader in the church, if you're a senior manager in the workplace, how are you exercising your authority? This warning comes particularly to those disciples who were going to be the building blocks of the church. They were the foundations in which this church was going to be built. And Jesus tells them, do not lord your authority over others, but become a servant. So whenever you go into your workplace tomorrow, how are you going to act if you're a manager? When you're leading in the church, how are you going to act? If you're leading a group, how are you going to act? Group leaders in the church, are we serving so that we will get glory from Jesus? Or sorry, are we serving so that we will get glory from others? Or are we serving so that Jesus will get the glory? If you were asked to give up your group that you lead in the church because it would glorify God more if someone else was leading it, what would be your response? I find that a great challenge to me with some of the groups that I lead. If I was asked to give that up because it would actually give more glory to God if someone else was leading that ministry and they would do it better than I would, what would my response be? It's a challenge, isn't it? And church members, if you're not involved in leadership, you're still involved in Christian service, are you happy to serve in ways that no one else will ever see, the ways that no one else will ever know about? I heard a story recently of someone who was sweeping out the front of their church And the pastor lived just next door to the church. And they were really hoping the whole time they were sweeping the front of the church that the pastor would come out from their house and see them sweeping out the front of the church so that they might get a well done from the pastor. Would you be happy to sweep the front of the church if there was no one else here watching you sweeping it? Would you be happy to clean the toilets if there was no one else seeing you doing that? I think that's a challenge to every single one of us, regardless of our position within this church body. It's a spiritual health check for us this morning to ask, how are we serving? What is our attitude in our service? Is our attitude that we want to get from our service? Or is our attitude that we are being slaves of all so that Christ will receive the glory? See, true service in the kingdom of God is self-giving for the good of others. It gives of yourself so that others will get from you. And this is ultimately and supremely demonstrated back in the climatic verse here in Mark chapter 10. Mark 10 verse 45. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus' ultimate act of self-giving service, the ultimate object lesson in true Christian service was in Jesus Christ giving his, up his authority, giving up his life on the cross so that the many might be made righteous. That is the ultimate display of Christian service. We read in Philippians chapter 2, the great passage about how Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at, but he lowered himself and humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. And if ever there was someone who had the right to exercise authority, it is Christ Jesus himself. And yet he gave it all up by coming to give himself as a ransom for many. With this I close. Frances Ridley Havergal was a hymn writer in the 1800s. And she penned these words this morning. Let's each take these as a challenge to ourselves. Thy life was given for me. Thy blood, O Lord, was shed. That I might ransom be and quickened from the dead. Thy life, thy life was given for me. What have I given for thee? To follow Jesus is to simply acknowledge his death as a ransom for your sin and to follow him in the road of self-giving service and in the road of suffering for his name's sake. Well, that's a challenge and message this morning from God's word. It's challenged me as I prepared it and I trust it's challenged each of us this morning. So let's pray and ask for God's help to do this in the week ahead. Let's all pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was pleased to give up his exalted position in heaven, to come to this earth and to give his life as a ransom for many. We thank you that many of us have experienced that for ourselves. We pray for those this morning who are here who do not know the joy of sin forgiven. And we pray this morning that they would come to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, accepting that ransom for many for their sin. And Lord, we pray for those of us who are believers here this morning, those of us as part of this church at Hollywell. Lord, we do pray that you would help us in the week to come to be those who serve not for self, but giving of self so that we might be great in the kingdom of God, not for our own glory, but for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. These are difficult and weighty things, O God, and we pray for your help to do this. Even as the preacher's voice will fall silent, we pray that you would still be at work in each of us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close this part of our service by singing a hymn together that calls us to Jesus Christ, that calls each one of us to follow him in service. We're going to sing above the voices of the world around.